0: Wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, today we begin a seven week sermon series called The Politics of Jesus. If you're a part of our fellowship here at Grantham Church, you may have read the series summary that I gave you in my weekly letter. Here's what I said this fall series is all about The quest for political power is destroying the church's witness in America. At a time when our country is polarized, hurting, and afraid, many who claim the name of Christ are fueling the engine of empire with their lust for power and winning the culture wars at any cost. We need to be reminded that Jesus never called us to change the world by grabbing hold of the horns of power, but he did command us to take up our cross and follow his teachings and example. And while Jesus didn't directly weigh in on the hot-button issues of his day, his good news was politically subversive as he was casting a new vision of human society, the Kingdom of God, he called it, where the world is transformed by the power of God's love and our faithful presence in it. In the politics of Jesus, following Christ in the American empire, we'll consider what it looks like to embrace the agenda of Jesus and embody his way of radical love. So I hope that you'll join us as we seek to navigate this election season by letting the Messiah from Nazareth lead the way. As you can see this is I think a timely series and one that I hope will ultimately be helpful to all of us whether you're a member of Grantham Church or you're listening through our podcast or wherever you are in the country. Whatever the case I just want to thank you for tuning in and being willing to grow in your faith. And before I move from the intro into the heart of the first message, I'd like to share a little bit of a disclaimer, especially for those who don't know me that well, or maybe as much as you think, and for those who haven't been following our church very closely. Here's what I want to say, three things. Number one, we are a Brethren in Christ church. And that means that our leadership is committed to our Anabaptist heritage. That is the Anabaptist of the 16th century uh, Reformation. The Anabaptists believed in the idea of the separation of church and state, uh, which they believed Jesus was teaching. And that said that there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there are the kingdoms of the world. And these are two distinct kingdoms and we need to know which one it is that we're called to further, that being the kingdom of God. The second thing is, is we are a third-way congregation. You hear me talk about this a lot at Grantham. Uh, That is, we think the third way reflects the Jesus way. One way to put it is we're political but not partisan. I've defined third way as we are addressing injustice without mixing the gospel with partisan politics, so that when we speak to any issue, while it may be an issue that one political party likes to talk about or champion, it doesn't mean that we are associating ourselves with that party, because as you'll see in this series, we don't believe that any political party can contain the gospel and the concerns that we ought to have as followers of Jesus. And then the third thing is this, and I want you to know I'm laying my cards out on the table here and telling you that I'm an unaffiliated voter, which in the state of Pennsylvania, where we are, means that I don't align myself with any political party. Now, why would I register this way? I wanna assure you that it's not about being politically correct, right? So I can convince you that I'm not partisan, but it is truly because A, I think the two-party system is broken. I told you I'd put my cards on the table here. I think it's broken. And B, my desire is for the common good, not just the interest of one political party. And C, my allegiance is to Christ. And honestly, I don't want to be tempted to pledge my loyalty to any political party. I'm a competitive guy. I came from a competitive family. I know that some of you can resonate with that. I, I want to win. But there's much about following Jesus that doesn't look like that. And it compromises our faith and allegiance to Jesus, as again, I think you'll see in this series. So I say all of this because at various points throughout this series, due to our cultural conditioning, I think, you may want to put me in a theological or political box in an attempt to pigeonhole me as one of those people. let's be honest, right? That I sound like a conservative or I sound like a liberal or dismiss what I'm saying altogether because of that. We're just conditioned to do this. Maybe you've already done this. Maybe you've already made up your mind when you saw the sermon graphic. I don't know. I hope not. I can only ask that you believe, hear me, that I am speaking out of 20 plus years of studying the Bible, seriously studying the Bible, out of my training as a theologian and pastor, And from immersing myself into historical Jesus studies for two decades, and that is to discover who the real Jesus of history is, because that's the same Jesus of our experience, or at least he should be. And most of all, speaking to you out of a a deep love of Jesus Christ and, and his church, that is you, that is me, and my passion for the kingdom of God, which I believe and I hope you believe, is far better than any nation, any party, or system of government that we want to enshrine or glorify on this earth. And as I'm sure you can already see, this this series is meant to provoke us all. Uh, Even the series graphic is meant to provoke us, which I'll talk more about next week. But what I want to be clear about is this provocation Is intended to spur us on toward greater faith in and love of Jesus and his gospel of the kingdom. Amen. Amen. All right, let's pause for just a moment and invite the Spirit of Jesus to join us on this journey and speak to our hearts and minds. Would you pray with me? Father, we need your Holy Spirit to receive the things of the Spirit, the things of Jesus. Would you glorify your Son? would you bring to us, to our minds and our hearts, with great clarity, who Jesus is in this series, what the gospel is, and what you've called us to. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Church, we have a problem. That is the title of the first message in our series. You have heard me say before that we're living in the divided states of America. You know, experts are saying that we haven't been this divided since the Civil War. And we're seeing a battle now between the far right versus the far left visions for the country protests and riots continually, police brutality, particularly against black Americans, white supremacy, the rise of conspiracies like QAnon the cult-like following of politicians, the win at all costs political mindset of folks on the right and the left, but especially among evangelicals, the fear-mongering media, the news fees of hate, so forth and so on. And the pandemic has widened the divide as COVID and mask-wearing has been politicized, which is keeping us from coming together in solidarity and unity. In fact, everything, has been politicized. You can't say or do anything that folks don't use to identify whether you're a friend or an enemy. Everything has been politicized. That is actually the first, I'd say, of three forces at work that have formed a perfect storm that's hitting our nation at full force. Cancel culture is another one. If someone says something or does something wrong or politically incorrect or just something you disagree with, big or small, doesn't matter, that person is ostracized, shamed, defamed, and and nullifies then every good thing that they've ever done. People just cancel them. You know, we're seeing this even in the church. I was on a Zoom call this past week with pastors in our conference who said they have people leaving their churches because they don't agree with the way they've responded to the pandemic. Some people are leaving their churches because they don't agree with the restrictions in place and others because they're not strict enough. And meanwhile, pastors are thinking, if, if this is what years of preaching, teaching and discipleship have gotten us, why even continue in leadership. I mean, can you blame pastors and leaders for thinking that? Now let me ask you this, what does this say about our faith? What does it say about what's really central to our lives? Is it our faith or is it our politics? And they are two different things. Is it our faith or is it our politics? And demanding our way, demanding our rights without a thought given to any realities beyond ourselves and our own feelings and our own fears. Which brings me to the third force at work, which has been around for a while in this country. It's what we call culture war Christianity. For many evangelicals, they believe we must force our will, our faith, our values, our politics, and our worldview on the culture and win the war against growing secularism sort of ward off what has come to Europe, this post-Christian culture, hoping that it doesn't come here, but it has come here. And and this culture war Christianity is about winning at any and all cost, even if it means compromising our own values. The ends justifies uh, the means, as it were. And if we're honest, a lot of what we're seeing is the suppressed undercurrent of white supremacy and racism, which is America's original sin, and, and we have to ask, how can we ever heal and move on until it's been fully acknowledged? Because church, it has not been fully acknowledged. People are still living in denial of it today. In addition, we're seeing a loud portion of the country fight to save the misplaced and destructive belief in American exceptionalism, this America first idea, and hold on then to what's left of this Christian nation Myth. Now, certainly some people believe that in the founding of this country, but it doesn't mean that it ever could actually be so or that Jesus ever willed it to be so. So Christendom is dying, and we're losing our privilege and power. We're being forced into exile, and frankly, many in the church don't like it. So we then fashion a theology that supports our beliefs. We cherry pick verses in the Bible to make our case and then try and rationalize our attitudes, behaviors and our political choices so that we can in good conscience ignore Jesus' example and teaching. And then once we've wrapped God in the American flag, made Jesus out to be a cheerleader for our so-called righteous causes, muted Jesus When he has anything to say about the challenges that challenges our way of life or, or our need to hate our enemies, which partisan politics requires, and that ultimately, this is what it does, reduces Christ down to the secretary of afterlife affairs, as my friend Brian Zahn says, then we can go about our business at that point, running the world as we see fit, which means that we can now grab hold of those horns of power I was talking about and force our way on the world by legislating people's sins, mostly the ones that we don't like, by the way, and setting up a sort of Christian version of Sharia law. Let me ask you, do you see anything wrong with this picture? Does any of this sound like the Jesus that you've read about In the Gospels. Have you read the Gospels? You know, because it shouldn't sound anything like the Jesus of the Gospels. Because if you've spent any time actually reading the Gospels, you can't help but notice that Jesus never took the approach to solving the world's problems or advancing the kingdom of God on the earth in this. Fashion And it's not that politics aren't important. We're going to talk about that in this series. But we need to be clear about this. This is not the way that Jesus advanced the kingdom. Actually, Jesus outright rejected the way of worldly power to advance his agenda and corrected his disciples when they thought that the kingdom of God operated like the kingdoms of the world. If we're knowledgeable of the scripture, some examples ought to come to our mind as Christians. How about when Jesus rebuked Peter for using his sword when they came to arrest Christ. Jesus rebuked Peter, reminded them, look, if I wanted to, I have the power to call on angel armies, but I don't because that's not who I am. This is not what my mission is about. This is not what God is like. And then, of course, Jesus said, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. Or how about the time when the mother of the two Zebedee boys asked Jesus to give them power. Say, when you come into your kingdom, I'd like my sons to sit on your right and your left in these places of power. Still thinking in a worldly kingdom way. And and you remember Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. It would be two guys that that were at both of his sides on the cross. Because this is the way of Jesus. And then Jesus goes on and and says this. If you've grown up in a church, you know this, where he says... That is the way that the rulers of the Gentiles reign, and this is not how I reign. This is not what the kingdom of God is like. And then in Luke chapter 9, 52 through 56, the disciples James and John want to call down fire from heaven. You remember this. Jesus uh, is on his mission, and he tells them to go out ahead into Samaria and find a place for them to stay, Uh, maybe a, a house that would welcome them, but they can't find anybody. And James and John come back to report this to Jesus and say, You can forget going in there because nobody wants to hear from you. And this is really upsetting. So why don't we just, like Elijah, call down fire from heaven and burn them up? And do you remember how Jesus responds to this this thinking, this mentality of of power and of winning? Uh, Jesus rebukes them. And and in some manuscripts it actually says, Jesus says, You don't know what spirit you of you are of talking that way. This is not Who I am, this is not what God is really like. You see, James and John, like so many disciples today, who still don't get it, think that it's about winning like that. Jesus wasn't in it to win it, though. Not in the way that we think. As Andy Stanley recently pointed out, he said they didn't, they didn't realize, like we often don't realize, that Jesus was playing a different game with different rules and after a different kind of win. You see, his win comes by dying, not by killing. His winning comes through love and self-sacrifice, by laying his life down for others, not by trying to dominate his enemies, but instead by showing us a better way, that love is the key to lasting change and transformation. And frankly, if we look around, I think we have to say the church doesn't really believe that, at least the majority of the church in America doesn't. And folks, here's what I want to say, because I I understand how a lot of evangelicals think. I grew up in that, I came out of this. And I I need to say this and I want you to hear me very clearly say that that what Jesus shows us and what Jesus is teaching wasn't a strategy of Jesus or some guise that Jesus assumed just so that he could go and die on the cross. And in Revelation, he comes back with a sword and chop everybody up. This is not Jesus. In fact, if you go and look at Revelation more closely, you see the blood that's on Jesus is his own blood and the sword is the word that comes out of his mouth. Nothing quite like the violent portraits of power that we have so wanted to embrace as if Jesus is just some other dude on a conquering war horse. No, this is who he is. This is what God is like, the Jesus rebuking us for pulling out the sword and thinking that it's about winning like that. Uh, this is what the kingdom is all about. When we look at Jesus, we see the kingdom, we see what God is like, and this is the Lord. This is the Lord and the good news that we're called to follow. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-8. Six, six through eight. And this is what scholars believe to be an ancient hymn that Paul is including in this letter to the Christians in Philippi, this Roman colony that is filled with uh, retired Roman soldiers and other patriots. He says this about Jesus, Philippians 2 verse 6, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. One translation says something to be exploited. And Jesus never came on and said, I am God, bow down and worship me. He never uh, latched on to this omnipotent powers that we might think of in the Greek philosophical sense of omnipotence that God can just do whatever he wants. This is not what Jesus shows us. Verse seven, instead he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. It says, like, Jesus set it aside to be a man in perfect submission to the Father, showing us what it means to to be a human being, a fully formed, healthy human being created in the image of God. So he was. When he appeared in human form, Paul says, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross Jesus will say many times in the Gospels, I do what I see the Father doing, what God doing. I say what I hear the Father telling me to say. As the author of Hebrews would say, when we look at Jesus, we see the exact representation of God's being. And then listen to what Paul said in Colossians 2 about what Christ did through the cross. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example, a spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. Now, you have to see the irony in this because for the Romans, putting someone up on a Roman cross, exposed and naked for everyone to see, that this is what happens when you buck the empire. This is what happens when you challenge our way of life, when you claim to be Someone that you're not, in Jesus' case, they thought. And they, they intended to make a spectacle of this person. But the irony here is that Jesus made a spectacle of them. You see, Jesus took on all of our evil, all of our violence, all of our death, all of our sin, and turned it upside down, turned it in on itself, and showed us that, that this is what we do to the Son of God when God comes into the world and by it and through it, he enters into it and enters into death and removes its sting, removes its power and exposes us for all all of our wickedness and all of our sin. In other words, listen to what Paul is saying in both Philippians and Colossians, cross power is greater than political worldly kingdom power and threats and coercion and the rule of law. And so forth. Remember, it was law and order that resulted in Jesus' own death. Sure, we're not anarchists. Christians aren't anarchists. Even the earliest Christians weren't. Laws can be good. We can just look to Romans 13 for that. But listen. Evil can also be done in the name of law in an effort to silence cries for justice and change and any prophetic calls for a new order that challenges the status quo, that questions the power and might of the empire's authority over people's lives, which is why Jesus was crucified. As we'll see next week, that is certainly why Pontius Pilate ordered it to be done. Jesus' gospel was fake news. It was a threat to Caesar's gospel. And so it's the message of the cross, the way of love that we're to follow and believe has power to bring about real lasting change to people's lives and to transform society. And it's this love that we're to be known by in the world. Jesus said so after washing his disciples' feet and changing the meaning of the Passover meal to be a symbol and a sacrament of his sacrificial Love, listen to what he said in John 13:34 and 35. So now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Listen to that. Just as I have loved you. Now, think about what Jesus has done and how he's loved us. He said, "You should love each other that way too. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The love will prove the world that we belong to Jesus. Don't miss what Jesus is saying. He is telling us that the defining mark of those who follow him, those who truly follow Christ, is our love. That's it. Jesus didn't say the world will know you. Belong to me by your stand for keeping me in Christmas or your boycotting of Netflix or by being belligerent about your religious rights and your freedoms, or by your bumper stickers and your church marquees. No, church, it's love, period. And so the response from non believers when they're asked, do you know any Christians, what are they like? Shouldn't be, well, they're self-righteous jerks. <laughs> they're obnoxious, or they only care about life in the womb, but not about black lives and poor lives and lives on death row. Or when you do a Google search, why are Christians so? Well, the results that pop up shouldn't be hypocritical or judgmental or anti-gay or likely to believe in conspiracies. No, brothers and sisters, we ought to be shocking people with the gravity and magnitude of our love that is as wide as Jesus' arms on the cross But sadly, as Shane Claiborne writes, that is not what most of our neighbors think about us. And Shane Claiborne says, it's clear that we have become known for some of the very things that Jesus spoke out against, like self-righteousness, and we haven't been known for how we love like Jesus loved. We've been known more for who we've excluded than for who we've embraced, more for what we're against than what we're for. And brothers and sisters, This should grieve our hearts. The lost sheep of Israel and later the Gentiles who found their religions lacking and the empire full of empty promises, they flocked to Jesus and the gospel in the first few centuries of the church. In Jesus' own ministry, they ran to Jesus. They threw themselves down at his feet, sometimes begging for mercy, pleading for his grace, looking for life because it couldn't be found anywhere else. And Jesus gladly extended God's grace, forgiveness, and love to them so that they might be born again and begin to live life in the kingdom. But you see, folks, in order to do this, Christ must be greater than our fears. Because if we don't let go of our fears, those fears turn to anger. And then that anger turns to hate. And then we find that we need hate. We need hate. We need enemies. And like liberals or Republicans or gays or abortionists or the NRA, we need enemies to live and make sense of things, to make sense of the world that we've constructed in our heads. And when that happens, when we've fed on a steady diet of fear-mongering and enemy hate, we can't hear the words of Jesus. It's It's a shocking, sobering thing to admit. A hard thing for many evangelicals to admit that they have wandered from the path of Jesus and they have given in to the forces of the world. The flood of competing forces that determine their reality, their identity, and their future. The forces and our flesh that say we must have enemies and we must destroy them. We must scapegoat someone for our sins. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 through 45, he said, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Church, Jesus, not me, and not some hippity dippity socialist, commanded us to do this. And, and he said that, it, that it's when we do, that's when we can be identified as God's children. That is when we can call ourselves disciples. You say, that's hard, pastor. Yes, it's hard. And that's what Jesus was talking about. In Matthew 16, verse 24 through 25, when he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Well, what does Jesus mean? He is saying that the way of the disciple is one of being the learner and rethinking what you thought you knew, even though that can be scary. What you, what you think you understand about the world, but maybe you don't. What you think you understand about the gospel, but maybe you don't. And about what it really means to follow Jesus. Jesus. You see, Jesus is saying, as he did to Peter, who was trying to stop him from going to the cross in this particular episode in Matthew 16, the path of a Christian requires that we learn to see life, power, and winning differently because Christ's kingdom, as us Anabaptists say, is upside down. And what does Jesus mean? He's telling us that letting go of the control we think we have, which we try to maintain by fighting and resisting with the weapons of this world, is the only way to experience the salvation, peace, and freedom that Christ came to give us. Just as Jesus himself trusted his life to the Father, we must do the same if we're ever to experience what the Spirit can do through our faithful presence and our commitment to love. My friends, this is the way. Some of you will recognize that phrase, this is the way. It's what the Mandalorians say in the Disney series, The Mandalorian. You know, I would bring Star Wars into this somehow. The Mandalorians are a fictional people associated with the planet Mandalore in the Star Wars universe. They're mostly bounty hunters and mercenaries. And at various points in the show, they conclude their interactions with each other saying, this is the way. You see, the way of the Mandalore involved protecting fellow Mandalorians and wearing a helmet at all times. The way stated that if a Mandalorian removed their helmet in front of another living being, they were no longer permitted to wear it. And so they lived by this code of conduct as it was central to their identity. And you know, isn't that what Christ has called us to be as his followers? Isn't that what he's called us to, our code of conduct? What is central to our identity is love, but not just love for our own. As Jesus said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And as Paul said in Colossians 3, 14, we are to put on love and wear it for the sake of the kingdom. Don't take it off, church. Don't forsake your calling, not for anyone, not for anything. No matter how dire our circumstances seem to be, don't fail to extend to others what Christ has given to you over and over again. Because the world needs love now more than ever. As we come to a time of invitation and response, here are some ways that we can follow Jesus in love. So I ask that you open up your heart In your mind this morning and consider how God wants you to respond. The first thing is this, we need to affirm the dignity and inherent worth of others. Everyone, you name it, whether you're Republican or Democrat, no matter who you identify with, no matter who you see on the TV screen and you think is the enemy, they have inherent dignity and worth. We need to say that out loud. We need, to, we need to affirm that within ourselves and with others. And think about the way we talk about them. You know, and the way we think about them. Because the only thought that you should have about another human being, no matter who they are, is that they were worth Jesus dying for. And that means they are someone that you are called to love as well. The second thing is this. Befriend and listen to those not like you. Many of us have blocked or unfriended people on social media or we have uh, isolated ourselves in echo chambers and surrounded ourselves with people who only look like us and think like us. Folks, this is no way to be as a Jesus follower. You need to sit and to listen with those who look differently than you and think differently than you because it's our silos and our isolation that is compounding the problems in America. And the church of all people have to model a different way. How can you do that? Who can you do that with? The third thing is this. Don't assume things about people, especially the worst. And think the worst about people and judge others. Again, what you ought to be thinking about other human beings is is Jesus died for them. They were worth Jesus dying for. And so I am called to love them. Love, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, always thinks the best. It always assumes the best about other people. Don't assume that there are people in this country, although if there are, they're a very, very small minority who want to see the demise of our country. This simply isn't true. It's false. If there's any fake news, that's it. And fourthly, meditate on the words of Jesus. 168 hours in a week, as I've said, and 166 we usually give to the world. An hour or two at church, and that's all. This is not enough for us to be shaped by the example and the teachings of Jesus. If we're being bombarded and flooded by these competing forces constantly, if we're watching 24-7 news, we're getting it on the TV, we're getting it at home, who do you think is going to shape your worldview? What do you think is going to shape your loves? Be mindful of this, church and be intentional in meditating on the words of Jesus. And then lastly, number five, pray for your enemies. And as Paul would say in Romans 12, do good to those. Jesus said it as well, do good to those who want to do you harm or you believe want to do you harm. I promise you that if you begin to make a list of those people that you think are your personal enemies or your national enemies or your foreign enemies, and you begin to pray for those people, God will change your heart. And I can tell you this, you'll become more and more like Christ, seeing people the way God sees people. Well, I hope, uh, folks, that you'll take serious this invitation and response. And as I always say, what is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? I hope that you will seriously consider what you need to do to repent and return to the Jesus of the Gospels, to the Christ who is our Lord and our King, and who calls us to follow him in the midst of the American empire. And may the Spirit empower you to respond in faithfulness, whatever the cost. Would you pray with me? Father, help us, Lord, to receive this message by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might be shaped and molded into the image of your Son, Jesus. For it's in his holy name we pray. The name above all names that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.